morning and welcome to Rising. We have an above average show for you today. <laughs> Brianna, what do we have? Well, Ravi, the FDA's independent panel of advisors has voted in favor of authorizing Novavax, a protein-based vaccine, which could soon be the fourth vaccine for COVID-19 authorized in the U.S. We'll discuss that with our panel. Then we will break down what we know so far from the California recall election. And a watchdog group says the NIH should improve its oversight of federal grant recipients who do sensitive medical research. We'll dig into that with investigative reporter Katherine Eban. But first, actor and Uvalde native Matthew McConaughey spoke at the White House yesterday about the massacre in his hometown and called for more action on gun reform. Let's listen to some of that. So, we know it's on the table. We need to invest in mental health care. We need safer schools. We need to restrain sensationalized media coverage. We need to restore our family values. We need to restore our American values. And we need responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun ownership. We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle to 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them. These are reasonable, practical, tactical regulations to our nation, states, communities, schools, and homes. Responsible gun owners are fed up with the Second Amendment being abused and hijacked by some deranged individuals. These regulations are not a step back they're a step forward for a civil society and and the Second Amendment. Mm. So do you think that that is going to have the desired effect, having someone who I think has a great deal of credibility as a local from Uvalde who is popular among conservatives in the state, saying, hey, it's reasonable to want to raise the age to buy one of these kinds of weapons to 21. It's reasonable to want to pass red flag laws, which they don't have in Texas. Do, do you think people will be convinced by this? No, I think it'll have no effect whatsoever. But he is a good vehicle for this message. Look, I, I appreciate that he said um, sort of restrained things, uh, you know, put out some policies that mixed feelings about. I don't think they're all necessarily terrible or insane ideas. They're, it was not sensational or radical ideas. Um, really, just listening to him, I think, why don't even more politicians run or uh, celebrities run for political office? Uh, whether that be good or not, they are clearly be effective at it. I mean, Donald Trump has shown that the traits, the skills one needs to be a successful TV and movie star are actually very similar to the traits necessary to be a successful political leader, which is not to say that he'd be a good political leader, but he would probably be an effective, uh, actual, at, effective at actually getting the role. Well, look, I, I certainly appreciate that he seemed to be able to deliver some of these things in a way that didn't have that, I got to say, sometimes uh, self-righteous tone that some on my side of the aisle, to the extent that I'm even in a pew oh, anymore, those, those videos, the, uh, can adopt. Today, we're asking you. We're asking you. <laughs> well, we're asking you. I don't even mean in those we kinds of ads, you. but even in this kind of a context, there is something very, 
um, human about the way he engaged here. And it seemed very natural. And I don't, you know, some, I saw that when he finished his remarks, one of the reporters asked him if he was grandstanding and there was this implication that he was acting at the podium. You know, given the enormity of right. the crisis, many people found that to be a bit of a t distasteful remark. But either way, it was compelling. And as it's a his viewer, hometown. It's not, it's not, it's not random that they brought him in to weigh in on this. He's no, certainly. And, and yeah. as a viewer, I, I will say I found, I found the remarks to be, to be compelling. We'll see what happens. You know, many people were particularly captured by later in the hearing when Matthew McConaughey spoke about some of the victims' families he had the chance to talk to, including the family of nine-year-old Maite Rodriguez, who McConaughey said could only be identified by her shoes in the wake of the massacre, a pair of green converses with a uh, star drawn in pen on one of the toes. His wife was sitting horrible, nearby horrible. holding them. You know, I, I, if Matthew okay, McConaughey, so who I believe identified as, as conservative, is swayed by this tragedy to talk in these terms about these kinds of gun policies, it leads me to believe that some other people who similarly identify as more conservative might be opening up to this kind of discourse just because of the enormity of what's mm -hmm. happened. I think we're actually going to play some of uh, when he talked about that. Are we going to play that? Yep. Here we go. They wore green high-top converse with a heart she had hand-drawn on the right toe because they represented her love of nature. Camilla's got these shoes. Can you show these shoes, please? Wore these every day. Green converse with a heart on the right toe. These are the same green converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. How about that? Okay, but the reality is, let's, we should talk about the policies. Let's talk about the policies. So background checks, fine. I'm fine with background checks. We can have more background checks. That's fine. I don't want mentally disturbed people to have access to firearms. That is the real task because most people, the vast majority of people who own any kind of weapon or who own an AR-15, are in, engage in law-abiding behavior and do not do anything harmful to other people with it. So we're talking about a tiny, tiny kook, insane, fringe, deranged individuals coming into possession of these weapons. So how do we, how do we stop those people from getting weapons? So we can, more background checks, fine. Maybe the red flag laws. Uh, raising the age from 18 to 21. But that doesn't seem like that would have necessarily helped in this situation. Why not? I mean, he was 18. He could have gotten the guns. I mean, there's so many guns but out he there. He went and he bought a gun. Both of these, the both both the Buffalo shooter and the Uvalde shooter went and bought guns shortly after their 18th birthdays right. to commit these crimes. But they could have found they could have gotten the guns elsewhere. They could have gotten a relative and or yet a they cousin. Didn't. Or they a... seem to have waited till they were 18 years old. I'm not saying, and no one is saying, and this is a kind of um, you know argument that conservatives always make. Well, it wouldn't have stopped every single one of these incidents. No one's arguing that this incident and the Buffalo incident, which is why we're having these conversations right now. Ha featured two people who went and bought guns shortly after they turned 18. And there are other kinds of interventions that could have stopped other kinds of incidents, and that's why we're talking about a cluster of interventions. But I don't see, it's, it's hard for me to understand what the need is for someone who is developmentally still mm -hmm. growing, who's cognitively not an adult, you know, until they're about 25 years old, who is in the age group where a majority of wait, wait, criminality. Say that again. What did you say? Not an adult until cognitively, your brain doesn't stop developing until you're about 25 years old. So the age of adulthood is 25. No, I'm saying cognitively, based on science, your brain doesn't stop developing 
this this construct of when you're adult is a cultural construct and a decision that we make right. every single be, day of our lives. It used so to be 13. You can decide whichever you want to decide, but cognitively, you don't mature until you're 25. And we see when you look at patterns of crime over time, almost nobody over the age of like, it, 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 it diminishes significantly as we you raise, get older. So like no one over the, the age, age of 40. 25? No, because there's absolutely. If your brain's absolutely... not done figuring things out. Robbie, there's absolutely no relationship between what the voting age should be and what your gun ownership could be because voting doesn't cause people to pick up guns and, and kill uh, tw- 21 people in a high school. Sure it does. Okay. It's the, it's the, what the, gov- the government is the one with the monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Our government policies absolutely get people killed. It's what if you people think, vote if for. If you think it's one vote out of 330 million people voting for one politician or another is commensurate with someone who's 18 years old going into a gun shop, buying a gun, and murdering a classroom full of fourth graders, then I think there's a bigger conversation to be had. But a lot of Americans I don't understand having wildly different standards or age limits at which, at which point you're able to do various because things. Because different kinds of behaviors have different kinds of risk levels. That's what we're talking different about Different kinds here. of people. The problem with trying to set a line is that different people mature at different times. So there are some, again, like I said, the overwhelming majority, of, even of 18-year-olds probably who, who come into possession of these guns, do not do anything wrong with them. So we're talking about a small number of disturbed people who should not have the guns at 18 or should not really have them at any age, frankly. And how, do we, how we identify those people and keep them from having those weapons is really the what we're trying to address. But I think that's different than saying that, you know, most people or the 25 or 18 is the age at which you can have a gun because, again, most people can and do nothing wrong with them. Yeah, well, I, I saw a footage of people, you know, practicing with these guns in a, um, a shooting range and the gun was fixed to a podium so someone couldn't get the gun range felt the need not to have the ability to pick up the gun and turn it around and spray everybody in the room and it's just really interesting to me that 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 seems perfectly reasonable if 18 year olds want to go and shooting at a range if 18 year olds want to do those kinds of things if they want to get hunting rifles and go hunting with their families all of that seems very culturally appropriate the question that people are debating right now is whether this particular kind of gun whether or not they, I think the onus needs to be on the people in the light of a tragedy like this on why an 18-year-old needs to have access to a weapon that can shoot so many rounds in such a short period of time. In New York State, one of the interventions that they have is to not sell uh, magazines that have more than 10 rounds to, for use outside of a shooting range. However, many crimes in New York still happen because magazines can be bought in other parts of the country, and that's an ongoing um, concern that people are trying to wrestle with at, at this time. Well, we want to play a little bit more of this uh, speech by McConaughey. He also urged party leaders to work across the aisle on the issue. Can both sides rise above? Can both sides see beyond the political problem at hand and admit that we have a life preservation problem on our hands? So we got a chance right now to reach for and to grasp a higher ground above our political affiliations. A chance to make a choice that does more than protect your party. A chance to make a choice that protects our country now and for the next generation. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, you have to face the consequences of your actions. We're all taught this as small children. When we do something wrong, we have to take accountability. And if we grow up and hurt people, we can be legally held liable in a court of law. If you drive negligently and hit a car or pedestrian, hurting them, 
or damaging their property, you're liable. If you provoke a, a, provoke a fist fight and cause someone physical harm, you can be liable under tort law for damages. If you negligently build a building that's not up to code and it burns down, you are on the hook. Under general product liability, a manufacturer is required to warn customers about the potentially harmful effects of its products and can be held liable if warnings were insufficient or absent. In some products considered abnormally dangerous because they carry a very high risk of injury or damage have an even higher liability standard. Makers of these products are strictly liable for harms that come from them, even if proper warnings attach and there is no negligence. So that being the case, why are pharmaceutical companies, including the manufacturers of COVID vaccines and opioids, held to a different standard? Pharmaceutical companies, they aren't like us. They get to play by special rules. Victims of pharmaceutical companies are shielded from liability by something called the learned intermediary doctrine. Under this doctrine, a pharmaceutical manufacturer fulfills its legal duty to warn by merely providing an accurate and adequate warning to the prescribing physician. The manufacturer has no legal obligation to warn the consumer directly. In other words, the risks are shifted from a pharmaceutical company to the prescribing physician under the presumption that their judgment intervenes in the patient's decision-making. Now, of course, this presumes that doctors are well-informed and better decision-makers than patients. And intuitively, this sounds right. But it ignores the fact that pharmaceutical companies spend millions of dollars on gifts, free samples, and travel opportunities for doctors to go to conferences and luxe locales like Hawaii in order to induce them to prescribe certain drugs. Now, you've probably heard about this in the context of the opioid pandemic. Of nearly of the nearly uh, 92,000 drug overdoses in 2020, the majority, over 68,000, involved opioids. 16.4,000 involved prescription opioids, and an untold number resulted from addiction that started with prescriptions and moved on. Now, a small number of litigants have successfully held drug companies liable in opioid cases, arguing that drug companies misled Americans, including doctors, about the true dangers of opio opioids. But these outcomes are relatively rare. The pharmaceutical industry was worth over $1.2 trillion in 2020, and that was before pandemic profits. Pfizer alone is estimated to reach over $100 billion in revenue in 2020, largely due to the COVID vaccine and Paxlovid, an antiviral therapeutic. That level of profit was described as unheard of by pharma periodical fears. Previously, the largest ever year on record for a biopharma company was $82.6 billion by Johnson & Johnson in 2020. And with their coffers that full, Big Pharma has the power to out-litigate almost every defendant, forcing settlements due to high legal fees and coercive lobbying tactics that skew the law in its favor. In 2021, the industry spent $92 million on lobbying at the beginning of the year, more than twice what was spent by any other industry in the first quarter. Almost $163 million were spent that year in total. And what do they get for all of that money? Well, as The Intercept reported last year, over 100 drug lobbyists worked to block generic COVID-1 vaccines that would have allowed vaccines to be produced more cheaply around the world. At the time, only 1% of COVID vaccines were going to low-income countries. A report released late last year by Public Citizen, a consumer rights advocacy group that had gained access to leaked, 
unredacted Pfizer contracts showed that the company used its power to, quote, shift risk and maximize profits. It's crucial to understand how power works here. Government research, not private research, was the core basis for the COVID vaccines. Experts estimate that between $18 billion and $39.5 billion of government spending have gone into these vaccines. And yet, corporations are able to use their lobbying power to limit the sale of the vaccine and to control prices. Even as the government was inking a $100 million deal with Pfizer alone for the drug it helped to develop. That's the power of the pharmaceutical industry. And that same power has rigged the law so that individuals have an incredibly difficult time suing for the harms that may come from some pharmaceuticals. Now, corporatists have been obsessed with limiting liability for years. Remember the whole tort reform scare of the 1990s? That was all about making sure that corporations could get away with creating harmful products, hurting the public, and dodging responsibility for their actions. If you believe in free markets and think that we should be striving for efficiency in the markets, you should be highly skeptical of liability shields. Lawsuits are one of the few ways corporations are made to internalize the harms that their products cause and therefore be forced to produce at efficient rates. If you're not forced to pay for the harms you create, you have no incentive to stop creating harmful products and the markets therefore become inefficient. Corporate antipathy toward taking responsibility for their actions is how we got the learned intermediary doctrine loophole. It's how we got Section 230, and it's how we got liability shields for gun manufacturers, too. The Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which bars liability for gun manufacturers, is a relatively new rule. It was just passed in 2005. Before that, victims of firearms violence were able to successfully sue manufacturers and dealers of firearms for negligence, arguing that they should have foreseen that their products would be used for criminal purposes. It's worth noting again that in other areas of the law, products that are naturally extremely dangerous are considered under a strict liability standard where a claimant doesn't even need to prove negligence. The idea of that is if you want to get into, let's say, the toxic waste business or profit off of some other extremely dangerous product, it is 100% your responsibility to make sure you do so safely. You can't offload responsibility to someone else. If you move nuclear waste by train and a cow is on the tracks and causes a spill, it doesn't matter if you were negligent in maintaining the tracks of the train. You're responsible for the cleanup. And if you think about it, that makes sense. If a company dealing in dangerous materials could simply blame someone else or something else, they never have incentive to maximize the care they took. Maybe trains carrying toxic nuclear waste should go slow enough to break for cows, even if that eats into profit a little bit. Most individuals, unlike corporations, are also something called judgment-proof. That means they're too poor to pay for the cost of harms caused by them in the course of their work duties, even if they are sued and you're successful suing them. So, for example, if, let's say, ExxonMobil were shielded from liability for an oil spill because they blamed the negligence of an oil tanker driver, then it would profit from the dangerous activity without ever having to pay for the risks. And the boat driver, of course, wouldn't have the resources to pay for the millions and millions and millions of dollars of cleanup. The same is true when it comes to guns. Guns aren't like cooking knives or hammers or other things that surely can be used to hurt or kill human beings, but which are designed for other purposes as well. 
While some guns are designed for hunting, the assault weapons and handguns often used in mass shootings are designed to kill people. They are inherently dangerous products that are used in predictably dangerous ways, especially when we're talking about guns with high magazine capability. Of course, many people use these weapons legally or for self-defense, and that is their right. I respect it. But if manufacturers were forced to be accountable for unlawful use of their products, they would have incentive to keep tighter control over the sale of their products, the proliferation of ammunition, bulk purchases, criminal background checks, and mental health checks. In the wake of the recent mass shooting events in Buffalo and Uvalde, some have suggested that fingerprint guns should become the norm so that only an authorized buyer can discharge their weapon. If gun manufacturers were liable, it would provoke market solutions to the gun problem and largely avoid contentious conversations about the Second Amendment and government interference. Just this February, Sandy Hook families settled with gunmaker Remington, maker of the AR-15-style weapon used in Newton, Connecticut, for $73 million. The plaintiffs were successful because they targeted the advertising strategy of the company, which promoted the guns for use by young children below the legal age to own a gun. The outcome will likely affect the advertising choices made by the company going forward, and that is a positive development. But imagine what could be achieved if manufacturers were simply required to be responsible for the predictable proliferation of their products among mafias, gangs, and mentally ill teens. Imagine if the people with the greatest control over the safety of their products had incentive to make the products as safe as possible. Imagine if gun manufacturers were held to the same standards as small children. Imagine if they had to take responsibility for their actions just like you and I do. So, Robbie, I was really shocked to learn that before 2005, there was a much bigger possibility of suing these gun manufacturers. And of course, it didn't mean that every time someone shot someone or used a gun in a criminal enterprise that the gun maker was liable. But there were these instances where because they were negligent in the way that they were selling the guns, advertising the guns, not keeping track of the guns, not putting safety protocol on the guns, making it easier to modify the guns in various ways, that courts did find them to be ultimately liable. And this doesn't mean it would be open season on gun manufacturers. No, I, I, uh, I take your point. I remember learning about the Deepwater Horizon uh, accident and finding out that, okay, well, why do they drill here in this, like, incredibly risky sort of environment and find out, well, the regulations prohibit them from drilling in some places that would be safer because people don't like drilling so close to their homes. But also there's a liability shield for how much they would have to pay in the event of a disaster that artificially caps it below what right what the market uh, would right. pay out so that does incentivize perverse can incentivize perverse behavior where you cut corner where maybe this is it is too risky to do this but now it is it's not as risky because we're only so liable so i i, I take your point i, I think it's an it, probably a, a better approach to dealing with a, a lot of these issues for the pharmaceutical ca uh, stuff you know tort uh, so I, I think of supporting tort reform in, in the sense of how much you can sue doctors for various things mm. because when that gets out of control, uh, it raises, and this is probably an issue with the pharmaceutical company too, but we, 
the medical costs themselves can get out of control because of the liability insurance that everybody has to have if it's easy to willy-nilly sue everybody for everything. That's the right, the yeah. other side of well, the equation. But the well, terrorism craze in the 1990s was all about these massive judgments that people were starting to win for, I believe it was a, uh, it was a Vioxx, uh, the big Vioxx settlement, which at the time was the biggest settlement, uh, win against a pharmaceutical company. And that sent these corporations into a tailspin. Now, to be clear, these drugs had caused an enormous amount of death, pain, and suffering across families, and the damages were commensurate with the deaths that had occurred, with the harms that had been occurred, that had occurred. But the argument was, well, this will bankrupt the company. Well, that's exactly the problem. If right. you're creating pro products that are killing this number of people and are causing this, this amount of monetary harm out in the world, and you are still cre creating it because you're never forced to pay for that harms, you are creating an inefficient market incentive. And tort reform basically curbed what was the legal system doing its job, which is stepping in and do, doing consumer advocacy and keep people, keeping people safe. So of course it got politicized um, by conservatives at the time, and they talked people out of doing the one thing that was protecting their own interests. And now we see in the context of this gun law that came up under Well, it got George politicized Bush, both ways, right? The, the trial attorneys, the people representing people making tort claims are like the most reliable constituency for the Democratic Party on earth. I, I, well, first of all, I don't know what differences that, that makes if the claims they're litigating are justified and cleared by a court and, and validated by juries. No, I wasn't saying, I'm just saying it's inherently it's a political issue because everyone on one side was part of one political tribe. Well, I, I, I actually don't, I don't think that's the case. And I, and I don't actually know that to be true. In law school, we spoke to a number. I mean, I, I was considered being a trial attorney at a certain point um, in doing product liability cases. And I remember speaking specifically to a very compelling man who actually did the Biox trial, who was a Southern Christian preacher in his spare time. I don't know what his politics were. We didn't talk about it. But that's the only reason I'm giving pushback. But I think the point of the matter is people should consider these extra, you know, outside of these kind of constitutional questions, mm -hmm. other ways to try to get the kinds of behaviors that we want without the government intervening yeah. and saying that this is against the law and having these constitutional questions mm. at play. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, coming up, a new Wall Street Journal polling shows Americans are blaming President Biden for the state of the economy. We will discuss that up next. The National Institutes of Health should improve its oversight of federal grant recipients who do medical research and whose scientists receive foreign funding. This is according to a new report from the Oversight Office for the Department of Health and Human Services. Approximately two-thirds of the more than 600 biomedical research institutions recently surveyed by the Office of the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services had violated one or more disclosure provisions, the report says. Contributing editor at Vanity Fair and author of Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom, Catherine Eban joins us to discuss. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, what's the story here? What are the disclosures that we should be so concerned about? Well, the question on the table is what kind of funding or monies are, are American researchers getting who are collaborating with overseas scientists and collaborating with overseas medical facilities and laboratories. Um, you know, what this, what this uh, review has found is that the sort of NIH oversight of this is a lot of Swiss cheese, basically, that um, there is a problem of transparency and visibility into 
what scientists are doing with foreign entities. Now, obviously, this has come up as a giant issue in terms of um, NIH grant to uh, an American science entity, EcoHealth Alliance, which had relationships with the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. Uh, there's also a big question about um, Chinese theft of intellectual property from American researchers. So the idea is what you need is for America's top biomedical agency, the NIH, to have very good, strong, and robust oversight and for American scientists to provide full visibility into their activities. And of course, this review has found that is not the case. So is the issue, if the NIH is funding some research, American scientists are doing it, the NIH needs to know who else is funding this research and then, you know, what, what, what comes, who owns the, the property or the outcome of this research is, is that and that not being disclosed is what we're talking about? That's exactly what we're talking about. But also there are questions about conflicts of interest. So if American scientists are getting money from, let's say, foreign governments or foreign laboratories, and that is not disclosed, um, that is a giant conflict of interest and it's an undisclosed conflict. So, um, you know, what are their loyalties at that point? What happens to the intellectual property, as you point out? Um, these are really critical questions, especially when there are high risks and high stakes for a lot of this research. Right. And what if we're collaborating with uh, foreign funded laboratories that do not have safety standards that are up to what we think they should be and, and that you're saying that the NIH might have no idea if that's occurring? That, that's right. Absolutely. I mean, there are giant biosecurity questions here. Um, you know, and there is also a question of uh, what is the research? You know, what what are they working on? Who's paying them to work on it? And as you point out, under what conditions is that work happening? Um, the universities um, where uh, American scientists work are also not apparently demanding sufficient disclosures from their own faculty about that. The NIH is not training these scientists appropriately to make these disclosures. So I think, you know, COVID-19 has basically surfaced this whole set of problems about how science is done in a globalized world and what is disclosed and to whom. And, and is, it, is it because the NIH doesn't want to know the answers to these questions? It doesn't want to start setting norms where they're being overly... Uh, ca uh, overly cautious or o overly uh, interfering in the research, you know, scientists want to do is it because they're, you know, ideologically disposed to that kind of, oh, we, we you know, we cannot hamper free minds or, or something like that. Because in a, in a lot of different, in, in a lot of other scientific fields, right, there's very uh, careful oversight in place. If you want to conduct a, a psychological study, something of that nature, you have to have all these you know, you have to dot all your I's, cross all your T's to make sure you're not, you know, compromising patient safety or, 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 uh, or, or uh, FERPA or something like that. And, and that's not what's going on here. Right. Well, I mean, I can't speak for the NIH, but my sense about this is, you know, as a giant institution, they've kind of just lost sight of the ball. You know, 
the oversight is not sufficient. It's not robust enough. It's not updated enough. Uh, there's not enough vigilance. So um, I think that this has just lacked attention. Um, and perhaps it lacked attention because maybe it didn't seem as critical at a certain moment in time, but uh, it's hard to imagine anything more momentous in this day and age and at this moment than what American scientists are doing in foreign laboratories. Right. Right. I yeah, said I, FERPA, but I meant HIPAA, just to <laughs> go ahead, Brie. <laughs> I recently interviewed uh, economist Jeffrey Sachs, who is the chair of Lancet uh, Science Journal's COVID research team, and he was explaining, and he's written about this uh, recently, it's been covered by The Intercept and elsewhere, that he was surprised by the amount of pushback that came his way as someone who wasn't ideologically committed to the idea of lab leak theory, but he found his investigations, which he had been charged with, were uh, thwarted, that he was receiving a lot of pushback from scientists as he was trying to get more information about the kind of research that was being done at American facilities, and that this is ongoing even all of this time after the emergency of the COVID pandemic is really galling so much, you know, it's galling that it's even rattling um, relatively establishment figures like Jeffrey Sachs, as opposed to some of the other people who have been able to be dismissed as more fringe in this, in this uh, context. Do you think that now after your reporting and some of these stories that have come out more recently, there is more attention to it and there is more pressure on these stateside institutions to offer up more in the way of exclosure, uh, disclosures? Well, there's absolutely more attention to it. I mean, but one thing that, that this um, pandemic has revealed is that scientists, uh, I don't speak for all of them, but a number of them are so hostile to scrutiny and oversight. They do not want regulation. They do not want to have to disclose or report certain things. And they have argued vehemently, often viciously on Twitter, that um, you know their conduct has been unassailable. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, from a lot of reporting, uh, there's a question about that. There's a question about the level of transparency. I mean, that's been a striking feature of the, the debate over COVID origins is a is a lack of transparency from our science institutions, our scientific leaders, and our top scientists. Yeah, I don't know that you can claim transparency or, or, or claim that you are doing everything above board when you won't just, you know, open the kabuki and show people what it is uh, that you have been up to. I think in this context, a lot of the suspicion is exactly because there has been so much resistance to just explaining what's been going on in the labs. Yeah, I mean, you know, what has been revealed is a, a real split screen. A lot of denials about scientific activity only to find out through FOIA and other mechanisms that in fact, um, there have been questionable activities going on. There has been dangerous research going on funded uh, by the NIH uh, that has not been readily disclosed and it's fallen to uh, investigative journalists uh, and you know FOIA sleuths to try to figure out what the truth is. Hmm. Well, thank you for joining us today, Catherine. Thanks for having me. And we will have more rising for you after this. Yesterday, an independent FDA advisory panel voted in favor of authorizing the protein-based vaccine Novavax 
And now, if authorized, Novavax would become the fourth COVID vaccine that is available in the U.S., being the first of its kind to be authorized in the states. Some experts are hopeful that Novavax might sway the remaining vaccine-hesitant populations in the U.S., given that it is protein-based, while the other three vaccines use the newer mRNA technology. Meanwhile, newly public CDC data shows over 80 million doses of the Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines have been wasted over the course of the pandemic. That's over 11% of the total doses ordered and distributed by the federal government. NBC reports that vaccine distributors blame declining demand, large minimum orders, and multi-dose vials. Our rising panel joins us now to weigh in on these developments. Jordan Charrington is a journalist and CEO of Status Quo News. And Amy, Dar Amy Tarkanian is a Republican strategist and former chairwoman of the Nevada State GOP. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Amy, let's start with you. Do you think this is going to have an effect on COVID skeptical uh, populations who, for one reason or another, are not as fond of the idea of an mRNA vaccine as they might be of this new protein vaccine? I think it's going to be a mixed bag, actually, because that was the concern from the get-go with some folks who were hesitant on the mRNA. They wanted your more traditional protein-based vaccines, like what we're used to. Uh, however, I think now that we have seen a number of health issues transpire due to the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines um, and uh, I, I don't think that it's going to actually have people knocking on their their doctor's doors, you know, waiting in long lines, eager to take this fourth possible vaccine. Uh, I did read a study where they said that the new one is they tested 40,000 people and of those 40,000, only five um, actually ended up with myocarditis. But with those five, I know that with Pfizer and Moderna alone, there were a number of folks, and I don't know what the exact number was, but they did end up with myocarditis and a, a number of other health concerns. Um, and I did have family and friends who unfortunately ended up with weak immune systems due to the, taking the vaccine that had the mRNA, or they even had a stroke or a heart attack. So I don't see this being the actual answer, unfortunately, to calm everyone's concerns. Jordan, what do you think? Uh, will uh, the rest of the vaccine hesitant uh, perhaps get in line now that this, uh, this one is available? Um, no, I don't think so, uh, for, for different reasons. I, I think that uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot, you know, excluding some communities that, you know, uh, particularly black communities uh, that, you know, were rightly skeptical based on their history with uh, government and, uh, you know, medical experiments. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the vaccines became part of the never ending culture war. Uh, I don't know how much of uh, the percentage of people that didn't want to take the vaccine was necessarily about the vaccine uh, rather than, you know, essentially you know, what they were being fed uh, in a lot of cases by right wing media. I also think there's a Trump element because there are reports that Trump is soon to announce his run for the presidency. And knowing Donald Trump, I could see Trump saying, well, that's not my vaccine uh, and cast doubt on it. Uh, you know, Operation Warp Speed uh, was Donald Trump with the mRNA vaccine. So uh, I think it's a mixture of a lot of things. I also think the element that the media is not really covering uh, COVID uh, as much anymore. Uh, 
those people who were already kind of, uh, you know, had held out. I don't really think that they would feel an urgency to go get the vaccine, uh, considering the media is not really covering COVID as a crisis anymore. And to what do you attribute that, Jordan? Because I know that some folks on the left have been arguing that because it's not a good issue for Joe Biden, regardless of what the crisis is actually doing right now, regardless of what rates actually are, there's been kind of like a, you know, see nothing, say nothing uh, attitude about COVID that was criticized under Donald Trump, which but which seems to have been adopted by the Biden administration. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. It seems like a few months ago. I don't know if they were all on the same conference call, but the media just their their narrative completely shifted to it's basically over. Uh, I think it's kind of the old adage if it bleeds, it leads. So they would obviously cover it when you had 3000 people dying a day, um, you know, refrigerator trucks with bodies uh, in those horrible days of 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it's, you know, less people dying um, and, you know, kind of uh, normalized, so to speak, that we have this many hospitalizations, this many cases. Um, I think they're less prone to cover it. I also think that's going to come back to bite us because contrary to what a lot of people are saying, I mean, there's a new study out uh, based on many countries, uh, 21 studies wrapped into this one study that a quarter of children that are getting COVID or having long COVID symptoms. So uh, in a couple of years, we might be looking back uh, at, at a new disability uh, issues. So I think the media is not covering it because less people are dying, which is a good thing. Um, but that doesn't mean there's not a lot of variants spreading, uh, each one more contagious than the other. Hmm. Well, switching gears just a bit, the CDC has again changed its monkeypox masking guidance, removing content from its website uh, that was listing mask wearing as a recommended precautionary measure for individuals traveling to countries where monkeypox cases have been detected. So CDC spokeswoman said the agency removed the advice because it caused confusion, but didn't respond immediately to the Wall Street Journal's request for more details. Uh, What do you make of this, Amy? It looks to me like, and I'm not quite sure, but they had just a generic recommendation to wear masks to prevent, to watch out for monkeypox while you're traveling. And then I, I think after some... Uh, maybe possibly right-leaning uh, uh, news outlets notice that and add, well, do you really need to just kind of wear a mask generally to guard against monkeypox? It takes more. I, I think I believe the thinking is it takes more sustained contact and, and possibly um, uh, sexual contact is how it's been spread. I think it, it could spread more easily than that, but that's how it's been spreading uh, so far. And and then they just kind of quietly revised that guidance. Is is that your read on on what happened? Well, it's mixed messaging, that's for sure. And monkeypox is not a new illness. So I'm not sure why they're having a tough time giving the public the correct information. This is something that was found in 1970, and it's primarily from the central and western countries of Africa. So this is not new. The fact that they switched from this is low, uh, a low risk to the general public, then to a level two alert, then from, hey, you need to wear a mask, then now to uh, no, now you don't need to wear a mask. I mean, where where are the professionals? Where are the actual scientists on this? So I, I find it a little concerning that they're having a tough time giving us the basics on an illness that's not new. So my understanding after just reading a little bit of coverage is that monkeypox can be spread via, you know, you know 
a, a kind of aerosol, you know, spit spray landing on you, mm -hmm. but is most commonly spread with skin-to-skin -skin contact, specifically uh, contact of a sexual nature. But, you know, I wonder if the fact that so many people are generally masking for COVID has led people to say, well, this isn't some, the kind of recommendation I would make for any given illness. I mean, obviously, if you mask, it will help keep you from getting the flu and any number of other things, but we haven't done that in the, in the past because we didn't think there was that level of urgency. Go ahead and throw a mask on because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a catch-all and people then realize the political implications of doing so, given that masks have been so heavily politicized. Jordan, what do you make of this? Do you, do, what do you make of the fact that monkeypox seems to be kind of growing in coverage and attend, media attention despite a altogether pretty low number of cases, just as COVID is kind of leaving the headlines? Yeah, I don't really put a lot of stock in what the Capitalist Defense Center uh, says anymore. I mean, the CDC. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's uh, pretty pretty obvious uh, that they uh, basically toss out conflicting, contradictory statements on the regular uh, based on which business interests or you know political special interests are pressuring them. Uh, with monkeypox, uh, I agree with you. Uh, I, the reading I've done, you know, it mirrors smallpox, which uh, smallpox in uh, in some cases did actually spread. Uh, airborne, uh, but you know that wasn't uh, the majority of the spread. So I think there's still, uh, like the other guests said, there's a lot known about monkeypox, uh, but we also don't really know, you know, how how close do you have to be to someone for it to spread in in the case of aerosols? Uh, and you know, for the most part, it seems it is spread uh, through surface, and uh, as some reporting has said, uh, you know, through. Uh, same-sex interactions. So uh, I'm not an expert on it, but I would say that it's hard to actually have a concise understanding among the public when the CDC on many things uh, has been a big bowl of confusion. Hmm. Yes, it has. Well, Jordan, Amy, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. D.C. think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, is often relied upon as an objective source for war reporting and analysis by the likes of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. But publisher of non-zero newsletter Robert Wright argues the think tank is extremely hawkish and a perfect example of American-style propaganda that not only has its reach in elite media, but is funded by the arms industry. He writes... Over the years, it has gotten funding from various corners of the arms industry, General Dynamics, Raytheon, lesser-known defense contractors, and big companies like General Motors that aren't known as defense contractors but do get Pentagon contracts. Robert Wright is with us to discuss further. Uh, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, joining us. So do you think it's it's not you know well understood that this isn't just a kind of like neutral surveyor of the foreign policy defense landscape, but an organization that, you know, is, is pretty actively uh, promoting an interventionist or even neoconservative foreign policy. Yeah, well, in general, I think the influence of think tanks on foreign policy is, is underrated and underappreciated. I mean, I think most Americans don't realize that when they read an op-ed by somebody at, you know, Brookings or or something or a more obviously hawkish uh, think tank like the American Enterprise Institute that, you know, there's an agenda there that that the think tank uh, by and large is serving. 
but I think uh, what what is happening here with the Institute for the Study of War is even uh, subtler uh, because, you know, what they do is they provide what is purportedly just kind of information and analysis. And in this case, it's about uh, the Ukraine war. And it is relied upon pretty uncritically by reporters for our most elite media. So I counted up like uh, how often the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times or the Washington Post has cited uh, ISW just in the first six days of this month. And it was like 10 different articles. And, mm -hmm. and it's been like that for pretty much uh, the whole war. And the kind of influence that ISW exerts is, is subtle in this case, and I'm not even sure it's all that consequential. But what's alarming to me is that the reporters uh, from these, you know, our finest newspapers don't seem aware uh, that, that this is a very hawkish outfit, right? I mean, it's, you know, kind of neoconservative roots consistently uh, advocating a militaristic foreign policy. Um, and so I just wanted to call attention to it. Robert, can you help give us a sense of the flavor of the kinds of analysis that are being cited in some of the articles uh, from just this past month? Yeah, as I said, it's 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 subtle things. I mean, I mean, by and large, what ISW is doing is presenting the side of the war that the Ukrainian government wants to present, which is going to highlight Ukrainian successes and and not Russian successes and obscure Ukrainian setbacks. And I should say, look, my view is Russia invaded Ukraine, like they're the bad guys. I do think uh, Ukraine deserves some kind of support. What kind, you know, and how much is another question. Um, but still, whenever you're providing uh, military support in, in a region this explosive and one of the combatants has nuclear weapons, you just want to see as clearly as possible. So what I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'll read you an example of this, and, and it may seem like almost nothing, but over time, these things uh, add up. So here's a paragraph from The Wall Street Journal. Quote, Ukrainian forces in the south near Kherson conducted a successful counteroffensive over the weekend, according to the Institute for the Study of War. Though they were unlikely to retake more territory, they might force Russia to deploy more resources to the region. So they're using the, the word successful mm -hmm. to describe an offensive that took no territory at all <laughs> uh, based on the conjecture that maybe it'll have this welcome side effect. My point is just that they don't do that for Russia, right? Mm -hmm. And so over time, these little kinds of things add up. I think we're in a period now where, where people are starting to say, wait a second, things aren't going as well in the east for Ukraine as we had thought. I think I, I think one reason uh, is that our, our media has been, you know, very reliant on on ISW in particular, um, and there are a lot of other reasons. I just think this deserves more attention than it's getting. I think I first recall hearing about this think tank. Uh, it must have been a decade ago when there was some, wasn't there some controversy with a, a researcher for them who had misrepresented having a, a, having written a paper or graduated from somewhere and it was a, it was a big controversy because her, her op-eds or her something had been cited in uh, Senate discussions of the, this was the Libya intervention, I believe. Do you have any Could have been. I'm, I'm not about? sure. There was another controversy uh, involving the president of the think tank, uh, Kimberly Kagan, and her husband Frederick Kagan, uh, who who got during the Afghanistan war a little little closer to General Petraeus than a lot of people thought was appropriate. There were kind of some implicit, 
you know, subsidies and, and favors done by the, the army for the Kagans. And the Washington Post wrote it up and it, and it looked like basically uh, the Kagans could go around and say, look, we're, we're in tight with General Petraeus. They could say that the funders get more donations. Petraeus could say to, uh, in this case, Republicans especially, because uh, the Kagans are most respected in Republican circles. You know, he could say, look, the, the war is getting support from, uh, you know, these uh, these, these uh, esteemed sources uh, and, and so on. But, um, you know, it's the, the thing is, even when there's no scandal, people just need to be aware mm-hmm. that the, the people who opine on foreign policy, on op-ed pages, on cable TV shows, and come from think tanks are probably coming from think tanks that get defense contractor funding or funding from various other special interest groups that are intensely interested in a particular area and would like to see a militaristic policy in, in that area. It's, it's, it's really pervasive and it's, it's systemic. Yeah, I was reading that, you know, Americans are deeply propagandized, but the difference between us and other countries that are propagandized is that they seem to be more aware of the propaganda, whereas Americans are under the belief that, you know, only, let's say, Russia TV or something that is very explicitly announcing that it's from the perspective of some outside group is something that folks should be skeptical of in the least. I'm curious, what do we know about who funds the Institute? Well, I mean, just name a defense contractor and they've probably gotten money for it hmm. from it. Um, you know, General Dynamics, Raytheon and so on. And then these companies, you know, that, that are smaller, you've never heard of them, but they, they still have an interest. Um, but, you know, it, the funders can be diverse. Like, uh, for example, uh, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, whose mission in life seems to be regime change in Iran. And yet it is taken like, again, they do the same thing where they do analysis and the New York Times reporters call them and say, what do you think is going on on the ground? Um, and, uh, you know, um, one of their funders was the late Sheldon Adelson, who mm-hmm. once literally advocated dropping a nuclear bomb, seriously advocated, on Iran, in the desert, he said, where it wouldn't, you know, hurt, hurt anybody. And just to, just to show them that we mean business, okay? Um, and, uh, and, and yet... You know, FDD is another example of a think tank that gets gets taken seriously. And and if you look at who funds them and read the stuff they write, I mean, they, they, they worked hard to keep us from getting a nuclear deal. Uh, voices like theirs are one reason the nuclear deal got blown up during the Trump administration. And one reason we have not been able to get back into a nuclear deal. And now people are all alarmed, like, oh, Iran may have a nuclear weapon. Well, we have that under control. OK. Yeah. But but because of the influence of think tanks like this, it all fell apart. Um, so, you know, the funders range, you know, from from special interest funders to defense contractors generally. But um, it's it's not a pretty picture. Mm. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And coming up, we'll go over what we know so far about the California recall election. Stay with us. Some are saying that progressivism was on the ballot yesterday in both Los Angeles and San Francisco. Analysts predict that traditionally liberal voters in both Los Angeles and San Francisco may course correct rightward as their cities grapple with record high gas prices, the perception of rising crime and the worsening homelessness crisis, as well as the sky high cost of living. 
in Los Angeles, an ex-Republican billionaire and real estate developer is an unlikely frontrunner for the Democratic mayoral ticket. Rick Caruso registered as a Democrat only 19 days before the first round of voting and has received the wildcard endorsement of Elon Musk and other celebrities, I believe Katy Perry, and outspent his opponent, uh, Representative Karen Bass, 10 to 1 on a campaign based on, quote, cleaning up L.A. In San Francisco, voters chose to recall district attorney and criminal justice reformist Jose Budin by a reported 20-point margin. Critics blame his progressive policies for the city's inability to grapple with crime, homelessness, and addiction. Joining us now to weigh in on these races and what the outcomes mean for the progressive movement nationwide is Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief at News Nation, Mike Vicaria. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Brianna. Hi, Robbie. How are you guys? We're doing well, thank you. So uh, answer me this. Why is it that people in L.A., uh, a state that's known as perhaps the most densely populated Democratic state in the country, are so taken yeah. in by this person who we're calling a Democrat, but who obviously was not 19 days ago and who yeah. has largely gotten himself on the board by using enormous sums of money in the way that Michael Bloomberg did in the presidential race to basically get, get on the playing field? Well, right. I mean, money's always a factor. It was the money in the mayoral primary that we're talking about right now in Los Angeles. It was a factor in the recall election of the district attorney in San Francisco uh, uh, as well. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, Karen Bass and uh, uh, Bodine, uh, Chesa Bodine, the district attorney in San Francisco, uh, were vastly outspent. Having said that, you can't all lay it at the feet of, you know, the billionaire class that's funding this uh, these drives to oust uh, Bodine and to defeat Karen Bass, uh, or at least uh, self-fund uh, defeat of Karen Bass in the, in the case of Rick Caruso. You know, I was talking to a politico out there in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, someone who was actually on the ballot uh, yesterday. Um, and he was saying that when he talked to voters, when he was out canvassing and in all different kinds of neighborhoods, um, he was surprised. Uh, the top issues that he was talking about among Dem Democratic constituencies that the people were talking about were homelessness, crime, and uh, perhaps to a lesser extent, uh, the threat posed by Donald Trump and the movement, the MAGA movement, and everything that happened on January 6th. That was what, what, on, what is on people's minds. And I think that manifested itself in these races we saw in California. Bad news for Democrats all around in terms of turnout and nationwide in terms of more evidence that perhaps Donald Trump does not have the influence within his party that uh, we all thought he might have heading into this election season. Uh, that's bad news for Democrats and perhaps good news for Republicans because Democrats really want to run against Donald Trump. If he's not as visible, if this candidates aren't, the candidates they're running against aren't as aligned with Donald Trump uh, as they might be, then that is a, a, a double blow for Democrats heading into uh, the general election in November. Right. I was, uh, you know, I was speaking of that, I was Looking at an email I got uh, this morning uh, for the Nevada Democratic Senate candidate, and, and like the headline of the email is Donald Trump rally, you know, whatever, tomorrow. And it doesn't even mention her opponent's yeah. name. It's all about, yeah. I, at first, it almost looks like it's an, actually an advertisement. For, it, it's, it's our, uh, targeting a Trump supporter and letting them know when the rally will be. But I think it speaks to a kind of out-of-touch quality that Democrats have. Certainly some of their base, some of the people they have to fire up are people who are just, you know, solely motivated or largely motivated substantially by the yeah. fear of Donald Trump. And, and absolutely, you got to turn those people out. But that's not enough people. You got to turn out people uh, who clearly are concerned about, you know, rising crime across America and are 
look, are just frankly not, do not seem to have faith in Democratic politicians or policies to deal with the crime and homelessness and, and those sorts of things. Right. And, you know, Robbie, and you and I have been doing this a long time. It's always the shoot the messenger or the lack of the messenger. Mm -hmm. or we're not getting out there. President Biden isn't using the bully pulpit. You know, um, things aren't looking up economically. And, you know, we can blame the media for harping on gas prices or we can uh, we can talk about inflation uh, seems to be tapering off. And uh, Democrats better hope that it does uh, in both of those cases over the course of, of the, the next few months and, uh, heading into November. But when San Francisco votes overwhelmingly to reject and recall a district attorney who ran as a progressive prosecutor uh, to not be aggressive about relative, uh, as aggressive about relatively minor crimes or so-called victimless crimes, something that is sort of the catechism of the progressive movement. When San Francisco, the place where Nancy Pelosi faces a primary every election season because she's not, uh, she's not progressive enough, when they vote to recall someone, and it wasn't close, then you know something's going on. Um, and when people you know, see evidence of uh, disorder around them uh, and uh, perhaps experience petty rise in petty crime, if not in violent crime, uh, then it manifests itself in the polls. And I think that's what we're seeing here. You know, and as far as on the Republican side, Robbie, it's the revenge of the establishment. Look no further than South Dakota. Dusty Johnson, who uh, voted, a member of the House, the at-large seat in South Dakota, voted to form the, the January 6th committee, who we'll hear from tomorrow night. And, and John Thune, who President Trump called a rhino. Uh, he's a member of Senate leadership, Mitch McConnell's best friend. That's not a compliment coming from Donald Trump. Uh, he won handily in his primary uh, there are other cases we could cite. Um, and so, you know, we're in a dynamic that is just not looking good for Democrats heading into November. Well, we should be clear about a couple of things. A media review I was reading recently showed that most articles talking about crime in the area really emphasize the perception of crime. And that while that certainly is up, there's no indication that uh, Chase's uh, tenure has led to a rise in crime actually in the state. Of course, Caruso was calling for 1,500 more police officers in the state, uh, sorry, in the city where 30% of the city's budget is already allocated toward the police. And there has been no yeah. demonstration that there's a correlation between the number of officers on the street and crime rates in L.A. So I'm curious whether he is making an affirmative case for how he plans to address homelessness and some of these other issues that are on the concern of voters. I did see some reporting recently that showed that he hasn't really been out front much on the campaign trail, opting instead for one-on-one -on -one meetings and as opposed to giving speeches in which uh, he might articulate a more substantive policy agenda. Is that right? Um, uh, for the most part, I mean, again, this guy came out of nowhere, um, and three weeks ago, he was a registered Republican. Um, you know, this is a recurring theme, and, and it's been been this way since the the, the midterms. Um, you know, uh, since, uh, I'm sorry, since the last election, when famously uh, in the Richmond area, down here uh, just south of us, Abigail Spanberger uh, took her Democratic colleagues to task for the defund the police movement, something that Democrats have been leading, led by President Biden, have been trying to distance themselves from uh, all along. So, yes, it's a question of perception versus reality, but we're in a political arena and perception means a lot. Yeah, um, and I don't know that it's, it's, it's just perception. It. Yeah, there, it's there's, there's homicides are up in L.A., 50 uh, percent yeah. from 2019. Uh, car thefts are up 44 percent. Um, Robberies involving right. firearms are up 60% in the, just the last, you know, 2021 versus 2019. 
Right. Well, right. there are a lot of those statistics that were also affected by 2020 and the lockdown, so that there was a, a, a big difference between year to year because of the big changes in people's behavior and the fact of people not being at work and in school and these other kinds of places. But when it comes to Chase's uh, prosecution record in particular, what people are saying is that it's not that crime rates have changed in particular, but he's being attacked over fewer prosecutions having taken place, which is exactly the promise of a progressive prosecutor, right? But there are a whole host of crimes. They have prosecutorial discretion and there are a whole host of crimes that prosecuting them is a waste of taxpayers' money, doesn't actually reduce recidivism or cause any change in the crime rate. And there has been little to no evidence to suggest that Chesse's um, uh, administration here is actually what's causing any of the changes in crime rates. And what people really have an appetite for is the idea of raising incarceration rates in a state that already has more incarcerated people than anywhere else in the country and the largest incarcerated population, if it were its own country in the world. Um, so are those the kinds of conversations that are be ha being had at all? Because my concern is when we do stay in the realm of talking about the perception of crime in these issues, then you do end up doing the work of the conservative party for them, buying into the initial premise. Well, I mean, you know, I don't live in California. I haven't seen the barrage of ads that uh, voters there were inundated with. Uh, evidently, um, it was enough, if nothing else, to suppress Democratic turnout across the board, across the state. Um, those discussions, all those points, um, Brianna, that you made have been brought up. We do know that. Uh, and that case was made by uh, Chesa Bodine himself several times, um, as well as his uh, allegation that this was funded, the drive to oust him was funded by billionaires. Um, be that as it may, uh, you know, people vote on the basis of their own personal experience a lot of times. A lot of times they don't. Uh, they vote on the basis of perception, on the basis of whatever tribe they happen to be involved, uh, be ad they adhere to, uh, and that's just a symptom of the polarization that we're seeing. Hmm. Um, I would say, you know, regardless of of whether we call it perception or based on hard evidence, uh, voters clearly are coming to their own conclusions uh, about um, what they want to see happen and the the insecurity they feel uh, about what they see in terms of the homeless encampments uh, and. Uh, relatively minor crimes happening around them. Karen Bass has made the argument that, you know, this runoff election is good for her, that ultimately there will be much higher turnout um, uh, after That's the runoff. That's probably true, yeah. And as a consequence, more, you know, settled Democratic voters will be out and will cast their votes for them. Is that wish casting or do we think that's likely to be the No, I here? think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a primary. Um, clearly, uh, if you look at the turnout rates, Democratic voters in California took a lot for granted. Um, granted, it reflects a lack of motivation and enthusiasm, the so-called enthusiasm gap that we're seeing among Democrats across the country. Um, but yeah, this will tend to surprise people. This will tend to focus people. Um, you've already enunciated some of the things I think we can anticipate Karen Bass, the counter arguments she's gonna be making to fight back this challenge from a late convert to the Democratic Party. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think obviously, historically and because of the reasons you outlined, because of the renewed focus on this race and the surprise factor, you know, news is the unexpected and now people are going to focus. Mm. Uh, I think that it probably could benefit her heading into November beyond. Mm. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. All right, love to talk to you, thank you. Thank you. We'll have more rising after this. Kim, I'm afraid to ask, what's on your radar? 
Well, Robbie, you're going to hate this, but mask mandates are coming back. Wah, wah. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that you've heard that Alameda County in California, where Oakland is, has reinstated indoor mask mandates for everyone two years and older. They say it's because they're seeing an alarming rise in not only infections, but hospitalizations and deaths. And interestingly, they're no longer pushing vaccine and uh, vaccine mandates and shaming people into taking one, two or even three doses. But they're instead back to the basics of wearing masks, which as a side note makes us wonder what happens to all the people who lost their jobs or who were smeared for refusing to take the shots when here we are now. So how much did it actually matter in stopping the spread and ending the pandemic? But back to Alameda County's mask mandate. Now, I know this is just one tiny ultra liberal spot in the country. So you might be thinking this won't affect me. We're done with masks. But before you throw them out to the landfill or ocean where billions of masks have now ended up, hear me out. For millions of us in this country, especially those of us living in big cities, which are typically blue, even in red states, you might find yourself covering your nose and mouth once again very soon. Take take, uh, St. Louis, for example. Though the government isn't mandating masks, businesses and tourist attractions are. So you want to visit the Arch, you need to wear a mask. And other private businesses are requiring them as well. So the reason, it's the same one Alameda County states, that cases are rising at an alarming rate. Now, Alameda County's press release breaking the news of the mask rules stated, daily reported COVID-19 cases have exceeded the peak of last summer's Delta wave and are now approaching levels seen during the winter 2020-21 wave at comparable lab-reported testing levels. Reported cases are an underestimate of the total due to home testing and unidentified infections. Okay, and that's fair enough on that last point because I think most people test at home and then never report their positive tests to officials. But if they're sitting at home sick with COVID, what does it honestly matter? Throughout the entire beginning months of the pandemic, what justified the lockdowns and masks in the spring of 2020 was to flatten the curve in order to not overwhelm hospitals. We heard these phrases over and over. Images were strewn about showing sick people crowding hallways of hospitals hoping for care. We heard of endless talk of morgues filling up and refrigerated trucks being brought in. Arenas were turned into hospitals and enormous hospital ships were brought into ports. It was a scary time. But here we are with exponentially more spread than at the beginning of the pandemic. And yet we have yet to hear these sorts of stories of overwhelmed hospitals and semi-trucks full of death. Yet we're still mandating masks. I want to bring up that there are many of these mask mandates rolling out. It's not just Alameda County where Oakland is. Uh, And interestingly, in Alameda County, Berkeley is exempt from this. So everywhere else has to wear a mask except Berkeley, California, because they have their own they're they're in some sort of um, health bubble where they're where they're exempt for whatever legal reasons. But other places are rolling them out now, like Sacramento Public Schools. They came back and said everyone's got to wear masks. Uh, Some universities are bringing them that back. So, you know, Robbie, what I'm really interested in hearing from you about is as a libertarian in the group. Now, I know that you're very against, as I am, government mask mandates, but private businesses are now coming out like in St. Louis and they're implementing mask mandates. And I would imagine that if a bunch of businesses, if there was a high level of community spread, a bunch of businesses might say, okay, it's time to start putting masks on. Everyone's got to wear a mask if they want to come to my business. And other businesses around them feel almost shamed or guilted or pressured into following suit. Or maybe they just think, yeah, I guess that's the right thing to do. Um, So you could find yourself in this weird situation. Like, is it better, do you think, 
when the government at least mask uh, mandates the masks, like if I go to Alameda County, right, I know now I'm going to have to wear a mask and carry it, carry it everywhere with me and put it on everywhere I go indoors. But if I go to St. Louis, for example, I don't know, right? One business might say you have to wear a mask. One might say you don't. So you're constantly like checking everywhere. Every time you walk inside of a building, which would you rather do? Uh, I, the, the latter. I mean, I don't want to wear a mask, period. I'm not going to go into a business that requires me to wear a mask at this point uh, unless I have no other choice, I guess. I don't want to wear a mask. And I think that's what most people are. But look, if you have a uniquely like there's a there's a there was a hyper liberal kind of grocery store near here, you know, locally, I don't know how locally owned it is, whatever it is, that's very progressive. And yeah, they had a mask requirement in place, even when the city in D.C. was no longer requiring it. I just stopped going there. That's fine. That we, we have to, you know, we have to learn to get along. If you want a hyper masked experience, then you can segregate yourself into, you know, uh, businesses, organizations that cater to your insane antisocial insecurity. I don't want to be a part of it. So I, I would still rather let individuals uh, individuals and businesses decide than have it required at the level of government. Because when it's required at the level of government, I mean, they're requiring it past what, what the will of the people is clearly. Because when the mask mandate gets lifted, then overwhelmingly, like 99% of businesses then say, okay, you don't have to wear it anymore. Sometimes they're not enforcing right. it, even though right. the government is telling them they have to enforce it because they don't want to enforce it. Well, and one one thing is, this was kind of trending last weekend, um, and even I got affected by this, was you know, the airlines are canceling a lot of flights and having Correct. to shift flights around. And, uh, and last week, even when I flew home to Boise, my flight there was canceled, and I got rerouted onto a different flight, and I had to do a layover, and it was really, you know, it was inconvenient. Where, same thing, I'm, I'm getting married here in just a few days. Uh, my family starts rolling in, and we have a bunch of guests starting to roll in tomorrow. Flights are uh, their flights are being moved around and constantly changed, so it's kind of a hassle trying to keep track of where when everybody's rolling in. But what when that happened, uh, social media and you know came out and said, "Oh, see, this is what happens when you drop mask mandates. You drop mask mandates, and look at you, Delta. You know, you advocated against them, and now you've got all of these 2,000 flights canceled or needing to be rerouted over the weekend." So I'm curious, Bree. I'm curious, what is the point at this? juncture in the pandemic of mask mandates we know now, you know that for a while it was okay mask like i mentioned to flatten the curb to not overwhelm hospitals even with the rise in cases in alameda county they're saying we're seeing a rise in hospitalizations and deaths when you look at the numbers they're still very very low yes it's an uptick well, from last has- week you know they do it by percentage and then it's like okay but it's still low well, I think the reality is for a lot of people that even if those numbers are low, it's your loved one that gets sick or dies or is hospitalized. Or if you're a health practitioner who is, you know, having to deal with that uptick, a friend of mine is a pulmonologist, and I just saw that he was doing a news hit the other day talking about the deficit of ventilators and how difficult it is for him to even treat people because there are these upticks and it's affecting medical practitioners and their ability to actually treat patients for a whole host of diseases that are lung-related other than than um, COVID. I spoke recently to someone, you know, who works with us, whose husband has lung cancer and is very careful to always mask because of his um, uh, vulnerability to COVID for those reasons. So someone who has a store where they enforce a mask policy, it might not just be 
hypervigilant or insane or hyperliberal. They might be someone who's dealing with a pretty significant health crisis at home. Cancer is one of the top, if not the top, killer of, of people in certain age groups in America. And I think that it's incumbent on us at the same time that we deal with the frustrations of having some inconsistencies in these policies in the United States, that we also keep in mind that people are dealing with really real health issues outside of COVID that, of course, can be exacerbated by them. And, you know, I, I personally am happy to be sensitive to those and continue to mask. Also, I just don't want to get sick and I don't want to get COVID. And I, I, I think it's actually a good thing that people are able to have their individual choices and that these businesses, you know, very libertarian minded are able to make those choices that's if they feel like me. that's yeah. what's safe for themselves <laughs> and for their coworkers. That's fine with me. It just doesn't make it. I mean, look, COVID is not going anywhere. So yeah. unless you're committed to masking forever, when you take off that mask, you're going to get COVID. Well, and do, do I mean, these that, mask mandates require, are they, they, I don't believe they're mandating the KN95s, right? They're just saying any mask is the requirement, right, which we now know, and we now know. And you're allowed to admit, finally, because the progressive uh, health establishment has admitted it, that the, 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 the cloth masks that people were wearing for most of the pandemic uh, are not, do, do very little, very little. Are you allowed uh, to, to say that now? <laughs> Is what? that allowed? We, we are, you are allowed to say allowed. that. <laughs> Le- Le- oh. Leanna Wen gets to say it on CNN, so I, I, I think we should be allowed to say it. You no, know, from, from that, I take that, you know, I wear higher quality masks. I've worn KN95 masks throughout the pandemic, and I would love to see a government response that made those more available and more cheaply available to folks who do want to mask and have the options at these kinds of places that have mandates um, to go ahead and put it on. What I will you- note that at the arch, you are required to wear a mask if you go inside of a building. It's not that if you stand outside and look at the arch, you have to have right, to mask course, up. Right, right. <laughs> but I mean, are you committed to wearing a mask for the rest of your life? Because I mean, or are you are, like, I'm just trying to get into the understanding of this. Mm-hmm. So are you wearing the mask, Brianna, and then you're saying, OK, when COVID's gone, I'll take it off because it's not going anywhere. So at what point will you feel comfortable with I'm just not going to wear the mask anymore. Or are you committed to the rest of your life wearing it? I don't know. I I fully respect that other people find it to be very onerous and uncomfortable. Me personally, popping on a mask, I probably have a mask on for all of 30 minutes of my day total when I'm in an Uber (laughs) or in an elevator and otherwise I'm in my apartment or sitting at an outside establishment eating or walking down the street and I don't find it to be especially problematic if it goes on for another year or so i don't see myself changing and it might be the case that i get covid and feel differently after going through that experience i might be less apprehensive about getting it again or i might feel like i have immunity for some period of time and stop wearing it after that but i i don't know i just personally have never found it to be quite as um, imposing as other people although i respect their subjective experiences No, I mean, I totally understand. I don't I don't find them either to be imposing on me. I don't mind wearing it, but I just also don't understand the logic in it after a while. I just think at some point you have to take unless you're committed for life to wearing it because COVID isn't going anywhere. We're not going to end COVID and get rid of it. Then I the logic in it to me is where then I say, well, you well, just got to get COVID. Well, some are you so. going to wash your hands for the rest of your life? Right. Well, you know? right. So that's what I'm that's what I'm wondering. Like, if you're committed to it for the rest of your life, that logically makes sense to me. I can get on board with that. I could say, okay, that's your choice if you want to do that. That makes sense. But if people are still wearing a mask at this point and then they're thinking, I'll be able to take it off in a year. What changes in a year? You know, that's that's where I don't understand. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I will say a lot of the other, I think, COVID related things that I've been doing, like I used to get out an Uber, touch the door, go into a restaurant, touch the door, sit down, order fries and eat. 
and I used to get sick a lot. And now I don't do that because of COVID. And I think I'm enjoying the downstream effects of having not really had a cold since COVID because I think I'm not engaging in some of those activities that I probably shouldn't have been doing anyway. <laughs> so right. I'll be keeping that up for the foreseeable future and, and masking as well. So. Well, yeah, on a different subject, we want to say happy wedding to you, Kim. Uh, I think absolutely. this might be the last time we see you before you're an honest woman, finally last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to take, I, I'm, I, well, we're still try, trying to decide if I'm going to come tomorrow to the show or not, but I definitely, doing the radars, it's, it's tough, right? It's a lot of work, as we all know, writing these radars and whatnot, and so I've just found myself in these days leading up to the wedding. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got so much to do. It, it's it's way harder to plan a wedding than I think anybody realizes. And I've never done this before. I hope to never have to do it again. But, um, <laughs> well, but yeah, it's if we don't really... If we don't see you, congratulations uh, from all you. of us here in the DC yeah. studio. I And I'll be gone for a while. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm taking like almost two weeks off completely because I'm going on my honeymoon. The day after my wedding, I am getting on a plane and I'm going somewhere warm and, and wonderful. And, and then I'll be back, as you said, Robbie, an honest woman. <laughs> well, you deserve it. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. New polling from the Wall Street Journal shows that Americans are blaming President Biden for the state of the economy. With more than 8 in 10 saying the economy is poor or not so good under the president. And as gas tops $5 a gallon in 13 states and counting, everyday Americans are taking the price hikes to heart and are pointing fingers at the administration. What do you think Americans are thinking right now as they see these prices climb and climb? Do you feel like there's a sense that there's someone to blame out there? If you had to blame anyone... Could you? I don't like to get political, but I would say, you know, it starts from the top, president. During yesterday's Senate Finance Committee hearing with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, we heard perhaps the best solution to high gas prices from Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow. I do have to say just on the issue of... uh, Uh, gas prices after waiting for a long time uh, to have enough chips in this country to finally get my electric vehicle. I got it uh, and drove it from Michigan to here uh, this last weekend and went by every single gas station and didn't matter how high it was. And so I'm looking forward to the opportunity for us to move to vehicles that aren't going to be dependent on the um, whims of the oil companies and the uh, international markets. The issue there being that, well, not everyone can afford to just go out and buy an electric vehicle. What do they cost? $50,000 for one? And they're not available. They're just, they're not available. Even if you wanted to buy one, good luck. I haven't, you know, I put a Tesla on order like a couple of years ago and still, uh, then again, it was, it's a cyber truck. So they're not, they're not in production yet, but it's difficult to (laughs) even get your hands on one. And same Mm -hmm. thing, my, I have a Prius right now. You know how many offers I get to buy my Prius? I mean, they, they're just, it's, they're unavailable to find. So well, in, her, in her defense, she did say, I'm looking forward to a time when these vehicles are available. So she acknowledged in her remarks that they aren't widely available. And I think we should be having a conversation about why that is. Why is it that America killed the electric, electric car? Why is it that we've offshored all of the manufacture for many of these kind of vehicles to other countries so that even if they were available, they'd be subject to the same supply chain concerns that are driving up the prices of a lot of these goods in the first place? And why aren't people calling on our uh, elected officials 
on both sides of the aisle to commit more to American manufacturing of these kind of vehicles, not just for this immediate crisis, but for the long-term environmental crisis bearing down on our necks. But also, what makes us think that the electric companies wouldn't start wouldn't start doing the same sorts of things? I mean, when you look at prices in Europe, for example, for utilities, it's not just gasoline. When you go there, they pay something like seven and maybe now, like I don't even want to know what the prices are. But when I was over there, it roughly works out to about seven and nine dollars a gallon of gas. That's on that's in a normal time period. Right now, here in LA, in my neighborhood, gas prices are over uh, six dollars and fifty cents. They're right around six dollars and seventy cents. But in Europe, they're roughly seven and nine dollars a gallon typically. Um, but their electric bills are also extraordinarily high. So what makes us think that suddenly, if we go to electric vehicles? that that's also not going to be a problem. You know, charging up your car is gonna cost you a fortune unless you move to solar. And then even if you move to solar vehicles, you'd have to have parking outside or, you know, you know, in order to even take advantage of that. And that real estate is gonna be at a premium. So well, no matter how you slice it, it's gonna be I think the rough. argument is that oil is up because of very specific geopolitical consequences of the Russia-Ukraine war and Saudi Arabia's unwillingness to play ball here. And that if we were specifically talking about what to do about this immediate crisis, that obviously having energy alternatives and vehicle alternatives would mean it was less of a consequence for, uh, you know, the state to decide, you know, the country to decide they want to sanction Russia uh, and therefore have these downstream consequences. Um, well, but we have all things, right, we want to have all things in the mix a little bit so that ideally, right, you want market pressure. You want it to be people selling traditional vehicles. Uh, well, maybe the gas prices are going to come down so we can sell more of those because we're competing with the with the electric vehicles. And well, so they can't raise the price of electricity too much because then people will go back to buying the gas guzzle. Like that's the kind of you want to set up that kind of dynamic actual competition. But in, in practice, that's difficult to do because the price of oil is so dependent on the geopolitical considerations. And, we, you know, we don't right. quite have the, the the ease of manufacturing uh, for, well, for the traditional cars or for the electric. Yeah. And ideally, I think need, in the long run, you know, due to the climate apocalypse, we are going to have to eventually wean ourselves off oil as hard as that is for everyone to apparently come to terms with. <laughs> I mean, we just need to move to some mass transit. I mean, that's instead of mm. focusing on everybody just needs to move to electric vehicles. And like I said, it's just you're just trading problems. Europe is Europe is a couple hundred years in front of us, so we can kind of look and see what the future holds. Real estate's at a premium. Good luck parking your car outside. Electricity costs a fortune. So does oil and gas. So mass transit is what they have, and that works for m many, most in their population over in Europe, ride mass transit. We haven't really gotten on board with that here in the United States. Some areas like New York City have, but other than new outside of New York, mass transit, especially in places like here in California. I mean, forget it. Well, I mean, that's we what a, we need to be looking towards is more mass transit. But we have a very big, vast country with an empty middle. It, it's easier to design a mass transit system to hit European cities. I mean, what we, what we have in the, you know, D.C. to New York to Boston corridor kind of does reflect that it's it's inefficient in many ways and it's too expensive but it's kind of along those lines i mean i'm not disagreeing with you europe is clearly way ahead of us asian countries are ahead of us japan's way ahead of us but yeah, uh, but we have trains. some technical you know we, you can't have mass transit from you know to get from <laughs> i mean to, get, to have this, me be able to visit you for your wedding and over overnight 
But if the government were going to do anything that is going to make everybody happy, so what, what you have is you've got this battle going on, right? You have people on the right that say, I don't want to be forced into having to give up this XYZ thing by the government. Okay, so if the government instead, rather than trying to force people into buying electric cars and wean them off of gasoline and force them into lifestyle choices they don't want to make, build mass transit, invest all that money in mass transit, give people options, then maybe when people see the mass transit, they see that it's fast, they see that it's clean, they see that it's efficient, they see that they don't have to be waiting at the bus stop for hours on end in order to catch the bus, but they know when it's a right, you know, all of these things that they could be doing. Then they give people that option. People might choose instead to make a different choice. That is really, I think, what we need to be doing. But what does the government do? Instead, they want to force people away from a certain type of, of, of fuel towards another type. Uh, I mean, it's just not really it, you're just trading problems in the long run. Well, I think we might be reading a little bit more into Debbie Stabenow's casual reference to her own electric car. I'm not sure that that was forcing anybody into any particular car purchase or an announcement of a government policy. But during the hearing with Yellen, Biden's Treasury Secretary admitted that she and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell were wrong about the economy and that they could have used a better word than transitory when describing the expected run of inflation. However, Yellen failed to provide a way out of this during the hearing. Inflation is really our top economic problem at this point, and that it's critical that we address it. So um, I, do I do expect inflation to remain high, although I very much hope that it will be coming down now. Meanwhile, corporate America is feeling the sting as Americans spend less and less. Target is slashing prices amid an inventory overload, and they're planning to cut costs in efforts to get shoppers back as gas and food costs continue to climb. So there's this interesting gap here between what's happening with food costs and these kind of perishables that are, have a lower uh, profit return on the profit um, than clothes and stuff that can sit around for a long time. People are obviously prioritizing right. putting food in their refrigerator and feeding their kids over buying whatever tchotchke at Target. You know, what should we take from this? Is this just a, a corporation upset that, you know, people are poor, people have needs and they're, they're not spending money frivolously despite uh, whatever is said about millennials and toast and all of that. Well, hey, maybe there's going to be a, a, a silver lining to this, and maybe those big corporations that are lining our politicians' pockets will actually pressure them to do something about the gas and food prices mm. because they want people to go and spend money at their stores. Maybe that'll be the benefit. But sure, I mean, yeah, of course, people don't have extra money right now. We're putting too much money into the car uh, for gas and utilities and also food. I mean, you, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, it's terrible it's the gas prices are just obscene and it's hurting working people they they can't afford to do this and i i have to think they didn't really know what they were getting into was this even approved by the american people to have this issue with ukraine and russia that were you know actively trying to work toward a specific endpoint, sometimes saying the quiet part out loud, sometimes our political figures admitting that you know, they, what they really want is regime change in Russia, which, okay, fine, yeah. is, are the American people signing on to that goal to pay higher gas prices until that's the case, whether that's 5, 10, 20, 50, or never years from now? Uh, I, don't, I don't quite think so, but the Biden administration doesn't seem to get that. And while the average American could see clear as day as the economy is taking a turn, progressive nonprofits are pushing influencer campaigns to promote Dems feeble accomplishments on TikTok. And what I wanted to say about this, I don't really care. That's fine. 
you can, this is politics, this is how it works. You, you get consultants and lobbies, communications people to try to make your accomplishments sound good. But every time conservatives do this or Republicans do this, try to do any kind of influencing anyone on social media, it is portrayed as a threat to our democracy, probably yes. Russian-backed. And then when liberals do it, trying to use the, whatever the new technology is, like, oh, look at these cool, innovative ways Democrats are coming up with to sell their message. And then, like, when Republicans do it, the, like, the, it just darkens. Everything goes, goes dark. Scary, scary. Well, I, I should point out that I, I found the story and pulled it for the day's segment because I saw it on Taylor, uh, Taylor Lorenz's. Uh, in, uh, That's exactly page. the kind of person who would, design, who would say this is sinister if the other people were doing it. Well, she's saying it's sinister when these people are doing it. It's a point that I'm making. So she seems to be pretty um, level-handed, even-handed about this. And the point that she was making is that this is allegedly runs afoul of TikTok's um, uh, own advertising policy that's supposed to be an advertising-free zone and that this is a, a loophole that people have been using to get around more explicit advertising. And, and more, uh, more most of these cases, there's no indication at all within the post that this is a paid post. So it's unclear how successful people are going to be at this. The other funny part of this story was that uh, it was an influencer. It was one of these paid uh, people who were trying to do one of these paid influencer campaigns that reached out to Vice to see if they wanted to cover the TikTok itself. And the Vice reporter ended up doing a story kind of uncovering the influence of these influencer groups on TikTok and reporting on the underlying advertising efforts Good. as opposed to the, the thing that they hoped would be advertised. So you, sometimes when you make the pitch, you got to be careful. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. Mm. Fascinating. Well, tomorrow on Rising, writer Richard Hanania will make the case for using civil rights law to end mask mandates. And Evan Greer breaks down the antitrust legislation that's scheduled for a vote in the Senate later this month. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You know what to do so that you never miss any of our episodes. And if you want to listen to us on the go, we've got a podcast. Check it out. Download it. Listen to it. And you will always have us with you <laughs> everywhere in your pocket. We'll be with you. All right, guys. Always. Yes. Always. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching. We will see you guys. Or I won't see you until like for two weeks. But because I'm getting married and I'm taking off. But um, these guys, right, we'll see you tomorrow. We'll be around. <laughs> Take care, everyone. <laughs>